Okay, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. If you have one of our Bibles, it's still on page uh, 1039. And uh, and we're going to be finishing up the letter today. We're going to look at verses 10 through 24. This is the armor of God passage, okay? And so you're probably familiar with it. You've you've probably at least heard of that term. Uh, It's been the subject of many, many Sunday school classes and flannel graphs and things like that, uh, sermon series, entire books have been written about this section of Scripture. And because it's so, been so narrowly focused on in such a broad number of ways, it's, it's easy for us to look at this passage as sort of this standalone thing when we attempt to apply it to our lives as believers. But this passage isn't a standalone passage. It's a conclusion to an entire letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of churches in Ephesus and the surrounding area. And in that letter, Paul spent the first half telling them about all the glorious riches that they've been given in Christ, and then he spent the second half telling them how to live worthy of the calling that they've received in Christ, how to practice the gospel that they've come to know and believe through Jesus. He's told them how to walk in humility in unity, in the new self, in light, and in mutual submission to one another. All of those things in Christ. But if you've been a believer for two minutes, you know that none of these things, as we call, or we're called to walk in Christ, none of these things is a walk in the park, right? It's like trotting through muck and mire sometimes. It's quite the opposite. It's a battle. We're constantly feeling like we're, trying, we're not making any ground. That's why we need armor. But my prayer for us this morning is that as we, we keep the armor of God in its appropriate context, in what Paul has said to the Ephesians in this letter, that we'll gain a, a truer and a, and a much richer understanding of what Paul's describing here, and we'll be better equipped to stand firm together against our true enemy. So I want to read this passage and pray, and then we'll jump in together. Ephesians 6, starting verse 10. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having prepared everything... To take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith which is with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the gospel, that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. I'm sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, Lord? We thank you for your word. We thank you that there is no part of it that is not useful to us. And so we pray this morning that we would see this passage that we may be familiar with in, uh, in its truest form, and that we would be transformed by your spirit according to your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our short history as a church, we started our, our first Sunday service back in October of 2019. Um, we, we met as a launch team for about six months before that. Um, but in our short history as a church, uh, through our preaching on Sunday mornings, we've gone through now three books of the Bible, okay? Um, that's not to pat ourselves on the back, but that's, that's something that, that we ought to rejoice in, that we now have three entire 
uh, books of Scripture uh, that we have walked through together. We went through Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, and we looked at who Jesus is and what is the Gospel. We need that as a foundation if we're going to be a church, right? And then we looked at James while we were online together during the pandemic, and uh, we, we walked, walked through what it means to live by true faith. And now we, we've, we're finishing up Ephesians today, and this, this is really sort of a refresher of both of those things, right? Who, what the gospel is, who Jesus is, and how we live that out by faith, and we, how we do that together as a church. And we know that that comes with opposition, clearly, right? I mean, just look at 2020, and, and we know that, that, that it's, this is not an easy task, we understand, though, as, a, as believers and as the body of Christ, that we're in a spiritual war. But the issue is that when, we, when, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we either over-dramatize it or we underestimate it. Now, there, we have a formidable foe, right? We have, we have a, an enemy who is much greater and much stronger than us, and, and his allies are greater than, than any one of us can defend on our own, and, and than any one of us can defend together as a church if we try to do it in our own strength. And so this morning, my prayer is that as we go through the end of Paul's letter, we're going to see that if we're going to stand firm against our enemy, that we need to together stand firm in Jesus Christ. And to stand firm in Christ, we need to have the right perspective we need to have the right protection, and we need to have the right posture. We got to know what we're dealing with. We need to have the right perspective if we're going to stand. We need to know where our strength comes from. We need to know who our enemy is. We need to know how it is that we fight together. So look at verse 10. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this dark darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Notice right away that Paul doesn't say, be strong, Right? He doesn't say, listen, find it in you, strengthen yourselves. He says, be strengthened. It's a passive verb. It means that, that strength for the battle must come from without us and not from within us. Where does he say they can get that strength that they need? From the Lord, whose strength is what? Vast, right? Does that sound familiar to you? God is able to do far above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, as Paul said in the end of chapter 3. In chapter 1, Paul prayed that his readers would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward all who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. And that power was displayed when God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, every power and dominion, every title given, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus is over everything, always. And that's a good thing, because the ones whom Christ is far above, those are the ones who are really opposing us. You see, our society would say differently. I mean, you could read a, a half of a news headline and you could say, man, people think people are the enemies, right? Everywhere you look, there's factions of people pointing fingers at enemies that have flesh and blood just like they do. Paul himself knows what it's like to be opposed by fellow human beings. Remember that he's writing this letter while he's under house arrest in Rome because his own fellow Jews brought false accusations against him, false charges against him. But Paul knows that people are not the enemy. He, the, the true enemy is a spiritual one. It's the devil and his army, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of darkness and the evil spiritual forces in the heavens. This is a spiritual battle with a spiritual enemy. Now, that doesn't mean, though, 
that the devil is our only enemy. We've already seen in Paul's letter and scripture as a whole makes it clear that we fight a battle on three fronts. We struggle against the world, we struggle against the devil, and we struggle against the flesh. But again, our battle with the world is not against the people in it, but against the demonic system of beliefs that reject God and rebel against him. It's a mindset of, godliness, of godlessness that deceives people into the practice of godlessness. Paul reminded his readers of this back in chapter 2 at the beginning of it in verses 1 and 2. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to what? The ways of this world. But what were they according to? According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the disobedient. 1 John 5, 19 tells us that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Our battle with the flesh is also not a battle against physical flesh, but against the sinful fleshly desires of our hearts, against our sinful cravings. Paul also spoke of this in Ephesians 2. In verse 3, when he said, we too all previously lived among them in what? In our fleshly desires. Carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Jew, Gentile, doesn't make a difference. Everybody's guilty. Now of the three enemies that we face, our own sinful desires are actually the most dangerous. This is why we can't over-dramatize the spiritual warfare, but we also can't underestimate what's going on there. As Paul Tripp says, it's only ever the sin inside of you that attaches itself to the sin outside of you. Think about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. He's sinless. He never gave in. If it weren't for the sinful desires that remain in our hearts, the ways of this world would not appeal to us. The accusations and the temptations of Satan, it, they would have no soil in which to take root in our hearts. That's why people can't be our true enemy because they need to be rescued from themselves just like we do. They're not the enemy, they are prisoners of war. One commentator said this, he said, we must see beyond people Satan may use people to persecute us, to lie to us, to cheat us, to hurt us, or even to kill us. But our real enemy lurks in the shadows of the unseen world, moving people as pawns on the chessboard of time. As long as we see people as enemies and wrestle against them, we'll spend our strength in vain. And so it is with the world right now. When you hear the shouting, does it feel like anything is getting accomplished? But that doesn't just apply to us as believers in an unbelieving world. It's important that we take this to heart in our relationships with one another as we grow together. You see, we need to see conflict with one another as a spiritual battle for unity. That, that brother or sister in Christ who confronts you with a concern or a disagreement is first and foremost your brother or sister in Christ unless they give clear evidence otherwise. And so you need to see them that way. If you try to respond in your own strength, guess what? You're going to be tempted to get defensive. You're going to lob accusations back at, at that brother or sister. You ever done that? You start talking before they ever even finish. But you haven't been left to your own strength. You have the strength of the Lord. You've been strengthened by him and his vast strength, immeasurable strength, so that you can humbly listen to your brother or sister, so that you can see what truth there is that's coming out of their mouth, even if it's not all truth. You can understand what he or she is saying and then respond in love with words of humility that promote grace and unity, that that extend and receive forgiveness. You see, our true adversary wants to provoke us into pride instead of humility, into division instead of unity, 
to old self-living instead of new self-living, to darkness instead of light, to selfishness instead of mutual submission. And he's crafty in his provocations. Back here in verse 11, chapter 6, Paul says that the devil is full of schemes. What are schemes? The, the, the Greek word that Paul uses here for schemes, it's only used in one other place in the entire New Testament. You know where it is? In Ephesians. In chapter 4, where he says that unity and maturity in Christ will keep us from being like little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. Schemes and techniques, they're the same thing. The word that Paul uses there is where we get our word in English, method. The devil and his dark spiritual army are methodical in their deception. That means that our spiritual battle is a battle for truth. But then how do we fight, right? What is our method? Paul tells us that there are two things we need to do. First, we need to put on the full armor of God. And then we need to stand firm against the schemes of the devil and his dark forces. The way we are strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength is to put on his completely sufficient armor. It's his armor. It's not ours. Very clear in this passage, right? God provides it, we don't. And once we're armored up, then we don't go charging into battle like we might think we, we, we want to. Get all gung-ho and be like, yeah, let's go. Storm the castle, right? No. We stand. We stand firm in the truth of our salvation. We resist the evil schemes of our evil enemy in the evil day. We don't attack Satan and his fallen angels. That's dangerous. They are constantly attacking us. It's a constant barrage of accusations and temptations and scare tactics in, in, in an attempt to rattle our minds and hearts methodically so that we lay down the protection that we've been given. It's a, it's a reinforced, uh, it's reinforced with a volley of hatred then from the world that's enslaved in darkness. We don't charge into that onslaught. We resist it. We stand firmly against the schemes of the devil while we stand firmly in the salvation of Christ. We put on the full armor of God and we keep it on. The verb tense that Paul uses in verse 11 has the sense of permanence. When he tells his readers to put on the full armor of God, he intends that they never take that off. So what is the armor of God? This is what we need to look at. Verse 14. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, this is where we need to understand what Paul is doing here. He's certainly familiar with the garb of a Roman soldier, right? By the time he wrote this letter to the Ephesians, Paul had been under the Roman guard for at least four years. And so the description that he gives of the armor matches closely with the armor that the Roman soldier would wear. And, and, the, and, and uh, Ephesus and the surrounding regions, that was under the Roman Empire. So Paul's Gentile readers, they'd be familiar with the Roman soldier's garb. Paul maybe even was looking at a Roman soldier standing there on guard at his house while he's under house arrest and writing this letter. But the temptation is for us to nuance this passage and break down every individual piece of armor and then elaborate on what it means to have that piece. Back when I was a youth pastor at my previous church, I did an entire sermon series on this. We spent a week on each piece of the armor But I recently read this perspective on this passage that really challenged how I looked at it, and it really forced me to look at these verses, I'll say differently, but I think also more truthfully, more honestly, 
and to help me gain a rich understanding of what Paul's communicating through them. Paul's giving an analogy here, right? We all understand what, the, what an analogy does. We, we know that it's, he's not actually talking about physical armor of God that every believer has to put on and wear for the rest of his or her life. Clearly, none of us are wearing it, right? We know that the analogy is not the thing. It's the thing that points to the thing, right? And in an analogy, two things are compared to one another in order to bring greater clarity to the one thing that the focus is on. But when we break down each piece of the armor, we're focusing on the wrong thing. The point is not the individual pieces. The point is the entire and total protection that we get. When we put the emphasis on the pieces, then we end up thinking about a Roman soldier. But when we put the emphasis on the protection, we end up thinking about the Lord and his vast strength. So we need to focus on the meaning of the attributes that Paul mentions and not necessarily the function of the armor's pieces or we'll miss the point of the analogy. But because it is an analogy and Paul's readers would be familiar with that, with the getup of a Roman soldier, we, we need to at least take a minute and familiarize ourselves with it so that we have this working mental picture. Most men in Paul's day wore robes or tunics, including Roman soldiers. Imagine this, this large, thick uh, bed sheet, giant square bed sheet folded in half with holes cut in it for the head and the arms, okay? And just like drape it over you. Now, it might be nice and cool in the summertime, but it's not super great for battle, Right? Things flowing all over the place. And so soldiers always wore a belt that they could quickly tuck in those loose ends and cinch it down tightly so that they could uh, be free to move about and stay agile. The breastplate was made out of a single piece of hammered metal or a stiff leather uh, or stiff leather or bronze uh, uh, with bronze or iron plates sewn onto it like, like scales overlapping scales. It was worn on the front of the soldier to protect his vital organs. The sandals that a soldier wore had thick leather shoes, and those soles were embedded with short nails or pieces of rock that dug into the ground and helped the soldier gain traction. Think of like a, a, a sports cleat or uh, a track shoe. They were fastened with durable thick leather straps to help keep them on the soldier's feet especially while they were in combat. They needed reinforcement so they didn't lose their footing or their dead. Roman soldiers used two kinds of shields. Shields. One was about uh, two feet in diameter. It was a circle. It was attached to their arm, and it was used in personal hand-to-hand combat. The one that Paul's talking about is, is the other shield. It was a rectangular shape, similar to like a riot shield that we would see today, It was about two and a half feet wide. It was about four and a half feet tall, made of wood, overlaid with linen or leather to strengthen it. Soldiers would then take these shields and link them together side by side to form a wall in front and a roof overhead that was virtually impenetrable, especially with the archer's arrows. Now, archers often dip their arrows in tar. They'd light them on fire before they... Uh, shot them so that even if they didn't hit their target, they created a lot of chaos and, and damage. Strike fear into the soldiers. And so the soldiers would soak these shields in water before going to battle, and the wood and the, and the linen or the leather would soak all that water up so that when a flaming arrow struck the shield, that, that wet wood and linen and, and leather would extinguish the, the flame. The helmet's pretty self-explanatory. It protected the soldier's head. Typically had metal plates that hung down around the face to guard uh, the the side of the face and then another metal plate down the back to guard the back of the neck. And then the sword. It was a long dagger. It was about 16 to 18 inches long with a cutting edge on both sides and a sharp point on the tip. It was clearly an offensive weapon meant for agility and speed And deadly precision. Now a quick survey of the armor together shows that the soldier is well suited for battle, right? They have everything they need. When we look together at everything as a whole, and when we think about it in terms of the armor of God, 
that Paul is talking about, it shows us that as believers, we too are well-suited for battle. We're totally protected from head to toe. There's nothing that God has left out for us. So we can't blame God then if we fall for one of Satan's schemes. Now the other thing that most people notice is that there's no armor for the back of the soldier. God intends for us to stand firm, not to flee from our enemy. There's no protection if we turn and run. But the whole point, the whole point of this analogy is that as believers, we have total protection from God by His vast strength so that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. When we understand this, when we believe it, we have no reason to turn and run. Why would we? And we have every reason then to stand firm. And it's easier to understand and believe when we take a closer look then at the attributes that Paul mentions along with the armor. He mentions truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the work of the Holy Spirit through the word. Now these are all major themes in the letter to the Ephesians. And they're not defined strictly by the piece of armor that Paul attaches them to here, but they're defined rather by everything that Paul has already said about these things elsewhere in his letter. You see, you can't divorce the armor of God from the letter to the Ephesians, or this won't make the sense that Paul intends for it to make. And so we need to look at these things. That means that, that truth then is not so much associated with the soldier's belt as it is with what Paul's already said about it in chapters 1 and 4 and 5. He said the word that they heard and believed for salvation was what? The gospel. The word of truth. Ephesians 1.13. Truth is what they're to speak to one another uh, in love so that they grow in every way into him who is the head. Christ. Ephesians 4.15, the truth is in Jesus. Ephesians 4.21, they've put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Ephesians 4.24, and so they're to, they're to put away lying and to speak the truth to each one to his neighbor because they're members of one another in the body. Ephesians 4.25, and as children of God who walk in the light, they will display the fruit of that light which consists of Goodness, righteousness, and what? Truth. Ephesians 5, 9. See, when we stand firm in truth, we stand firm against Satan, who is a liar and the father of lies. Ephesians 4, 24 and 5, 9 also mention righteousness. In chapter 4, Paul reminds them that they've been remade in God's likeness by putting on the righteousness of Christ. Through faith in his sacrificial death on the cross for our forgiveness of our sins, all believers are given Christ's righteousness. We're now clothed in it, and it can never be removed. Nobody can take away what Christ has given to us. We've been justified by Jesus. In Ephesians 5, 9, Paul tells his readers that uh, to live as children of light who display the righteousness that they've been given. Not to earn it, but to display it. Walking in righteousness involves doing the good works that God has prepared ahead of time for us to do, according to Ephesians 2.10. This is the process of, of sanctification. It's living in obedience to God because we've been made righteous in Christ. So we need to stand firm in righteousness. And when we stand firm in righteousness, we stand firm against the devil who has no righteousness in himself and who's darkened the world in unrighteousness. What about peace? Verse 15 talks about having feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. And when we focus on the sandals, we typically come to the conclusion that we need to be ready to share the gospel with others. Right? And we do. But what Paul is focusing on here is the peace that the gospel brings to the believer and enables them to be ready to stand firm against the devil's schemes. Peace comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 1.1 and 5.23. In Ephesians 2, uh, 11 through 21, Paul reminded his Gentile readers that they now have 
peace with Jewish believers through Christ, who is our peace. Because he came and preached the good news of peace to those who were far away and peace to those who are near. He broke down the wall of hostility between the two and he created in himself one new man from the two. In chapter 4, Paul calls his readers to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of what? Peace. The peace that the gospel brings is reconciliation. It's union between people and God and, and between people and people. And so when we stand firm in peace, we stand firm against the devil who seeks to divide what God has brought together in Jesus Christ. Yes, we need to be ready to share the gospel. But do you know where that readiness comes from? It comes from knowing that we now have peace with God. And we take that gospel to others so that we can have peace with them and be reconciled. And that they can be reconciled to God. See, so you can't live out the gospel until you live in the gospel. And that requires faith, which is what Paul mentions after peace. He mentions faith in almost every chapter of Ephesians. Chapter 1, Paul tells his readers that he's heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus, and, and that drives him then to pray for them constantly. In chapter 2, he reminds them that they're saved by grace through what? Faith. And this is not from themselves. It's God's gift. In chapter 3, he reminds them that they have boldness and confident access to God in prayer through faith in Christ. Chapter 4, he reminds them that there is one faith that unites them together as one body. And as we'll see in verse 23, chapter 6, faith comes along with peace and love from God to his people. Faith acts as a shield to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Some translations call that those flaming arrows fiery darts, right? And I think when we, when we hear the word darts, we kind of get this picture like, oh, it's what Satan's doing is, n is nothing. It's something. He's a foe. It's not a dinky dart. It's like a javelin or a spear that he's hurling at you. The point is that whatever Satan hurls at you, it's coming with force. This is what he's talking about. But we don't downplay the force by which Satan is attacking us. We upplay the peace that we have, the faith that God has given us to trust him because he is our help and shield. And so we don't need to fear the attacks of our enemy. The faith we have was given to us by God as a gift and he holds us firmly in his grasp. Nothing can snatch us out of it. When we stand firm in faith, we stand firm against the devil and quench his flaming arrows to try to put fear and doubt into our minds and make us think our salvation depends on us. But salvation doesn't depend on us according to chapter 2. We're not saved by our own works. We're, 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 or we'd be able to boast in ourselves. We'd be able to take credit for something. But Paul reminds believers that we all were once dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. We are saved by grace. And not only that, but we were sealed with his Holy Spirit when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. And when we believed it, salvation is uh, from God is our protection. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son that he loves, as Paul says to his letter to the Colossians. In Christ, we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. In, and so when we stand firm in salvation that God has freely given to us, then we stand firm against the devil's attempts to rule our minds and our hearts. The last piece of armor that Paul mentions is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we've been reading Paul's letter not simply as a letter, but as the Word of God, remember, Right? This is the Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. 
And Paul reminds his readers that they were sealed with this promised Holy Spirit when they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation. And they were sealed with this promised Holy Spirit when they believed. They have access, uh, that's chapter 1, verse 13. They have access to the Father by the same Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 18. They're made God's dwelling place together by the Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 22. The Spirit revealed to the apostles and the prophets the mystery of the gospel that was not previously made known to people in other generations, that Jew and Gentile can be one in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 5. The Spirit strengthens them with power in, the, in their inner being. Chapter 3, verse 16. The Spirit unites them as a church. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. The Holy Spirit enables them to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, to sing and to make music with their heart to the Lord, to give thanks in all things, always, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and to submit to one another out of the fear of Christ. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth according to John chapter 16, and God's word is the truth according to John chapter 17. The Holy Spirit works in us using God's word as a sword that defends us from deception and false teaching. It protects us from the lies of the deceiver. So we must read it. We need to study it. We need to memorize it, hide it in our hearts. We need to meditate on it day and night. We need to pray through it together. We need to talk about it with one another. We need to sing its truths together. We need to preach it week in and week out, day by day by day, to ourselves and to each other. When Satan attacks us with his lies, we need to be ready to counter it with, it is written. But the word is also an offensive weapon. It's not just defensive, right? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, it's the word of God that penetrates the hearts of unbelievers and exposes their need for Christ. That's what it did for you and me as now believers in Christ. Paul told his readers that they were sealed with the Holy Spirit when they heard what? The word of truth. When that sword pierced their heart and exposed their need for Jesus. And they believed that they were in need. And they believed that Christ met that need. That word of truth is the gospel. That's why we need to be people who proclaim his word. The word of truth, the gospel of our salvation to others, we're never going to argue someone into the kingdom of God. Good luck. They must be persuaded by Christ, by his grace, by his mercy, by his love, displayed in his sacrificial death and resurrection and the life that he lived on our behalf so that we could get his righteousness and he could take our blame. The only way somebody knows about these things is through the word of God. It's the only weapon we have because it's the only weapon that we need. When we look at the armor of God in the context of Paul's entire letter, we don't see a Roman soldier, we see Jesus Christ himself. He is the truth. He is our righteousness. He is our peace. Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Christ alone is our salvation, and Christ is the living word of God. So what does all this mean? Christ himself, Jesus, God in the flesh, is our armor. He is our complete protection from the enemy. He's the full armor of God. We stand firm against the devil when we stand firm in Christ. And all that he's provided for us. So that means that if you don't have Christ, you don't have protection. You're vulnerable to deceptive schemes of the devil. Instead of standing firm, you stand condemned 
by God and are subject to his wrath against you because of your sin and rebellion against him. But Christ can be your covering. That's the whole point here. If you can't fight the devil on your own, what makes you think that you can fight God on your own? Christ is our covering on the cross. He gave his life for sinners, not just to to give us a better life here on earth, but to absorb, to take the deadly blow of God's wrath away from us. He put it on himself to give us his own righteousness instead. Jesus died in our place, and then he rose in power, the same power The vast strength on the third day, he rose in that strength so that we could be forgiven forever, forever, and united with him through faith in what he's done for us. And and for all those who entrust themselves to Christ through faith, Christ continues then to be our covering. We're no longer under the wrath of God. We're safe from that. Now, not even that, we're saved completely. So that we gain the righteousness of Christ and eternity with God forever. But Christ continues to be our covering while we wait. Protecting us from the wickedness of the world and the schemes of the devil. And those devastating fleshly desires of our heart. Why not entrust yourself then to him today if you haven't done that? Be clothed in the impenetrable salvation of Jesus Christ. As believers, we're called to walk in obedience to Jesus. To disobey the Lord is to sin against him, right? We know this. It's a self-inflicted wound that comes from laying aside our armor. But we need to remember that it's not our obedience that keeps us clothed in Christ. Oh, we need to remember that. It's not our obedience that keeps us clothed in Christ. It's our being clothed in Christ that enables our obedience. And so we need to continue to confess our sin and to be reminded of the forgiveness and the redemption that we have in Jesus. We need to continue to preach the gospel to ourselves. That's why our mission statement is what it is. That's what we need to nuance in our lives. It's the gospel. We need to be honest about where we're at and the things we're facing, and we need to be honest about who Jesus is and what he's done to overcome it. And we need to preach the gospel to each other when we forget it, or because we forget it, so that we can stand firm in truth together. And in order to do that constantly, consistently, we need the right posture. Look at verse 18. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth and make to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be be bold enough to speak about it as I should. If we're going to endure the spiritual battle, we need to uh, remain dependent upon the Lord in prayer. Our prayers must be guided by the Holy Spirit, which means that they must be guided by the word of truth because the Spirit leads us into all truth. We are to pray at all times. There's no occasion uh, that allows for prayer to be set aside in the life of a believer. And that doesn't mean we go around chanting these incantations to God all the time. But we need to remember that we're clothed in Christ. At At a moment's notice, he's there because he's always there which means we can come to him anytime, and we need to. There's no occasion that allows for prayer to be dismissed, to be set aside in the life of a believer. Instead, we're to persevere in it together. Prayer keeps us alert. It helps us pay attention to what's going on around us and, and all the things that we have available to us in Christ. Helps us pay attention to the enemy's schemes so that we can know how to ask God for help. We pray urgently for one another because no soldier fights a battle alone, right? There are a few things that encourage me 
more than knowing and hearing not only that our family, my family and I are being prayed for, but when somebody prays with us and for us in that moment. Especially when those prayers remind me of the truth of the gospel. Prayer unites us with one another. It helps us empathize with each other's suffering and it helps us humbly remember our own need for help outside of ourselves. Notice what Paul asks his readers to pray for here. That God would fill his mouth with words that communicate the gospel clearly whenever he opens it to speak to others and that God would give Paul the boldness to open his mouth to speak the truth of the gospel. Boy, he's sure done that in this letter, hasn't he? He's done it with pen. Even Paul needs prayer to continue to do it with his mouth. This is the reason Paul's imprisoned, because he opened his mouth. His ministry of the gospel doesn't stop because he's in chains, because why? God's word is never chained, right? The Roman soldiers who guard Paul, they're the ones who are truly in prison because they are enslaved by sin and death. Paul holds the keys to their freedom through the, the truth of the gospel. How could he keep his mouth shut? And yet he knows his own weakness and needs prayer so that he continues to open it. Are you convinced that the people around you, those people that are lost and broken, that God has placed into your life, are you convinced that they are prisoners and not your enemies? And that God wants you to open your mouth and speak the good news of Jesus to them? Or do you have trouble opening your mouth out of fear of rejection or ridicule or persecution? If that's the case, then guess what? You need to pray. And you need people to pray for you and with you to be strengthened by Christ through the gospel yourself. I can't think of a time where I've heard the gospel and haven't been renewed by it. That's what it does. It's the power of salvation for those who believe. We need to be strengthened by the gospel so that we proclaim the gospel, boldly share it with others. Paul ends his letter with a couple reminders. Verse 21. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. I'm sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know we are in, uh, how we are, excuse me, and to encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and sisters in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to be able to pray effectively for one another, guess what? We need to know what's going on in each other's lives. And in order to know what's going on in each other's lives, that means that we need to share our lives together with one another. If Paul wasn't able, if, if uh, prison wasn't keeping Paul from being there with them, he would be there with them. He spent several years in Ephesus with them, sharing his life with them. He sent Tychicus to catch his readers up to speed on what's been going on while he's been in prison. He, only, he not only wants them to be informed, but he wants them to be encouraged because his imprisonment was actually serving to advance the gospel. That's why he's asking for prayer. Listen, I'm in prison, but, but God's doing something with this. Help me not to close my mouth. And then Paul signs off with the reminder of the gospel. As his brothers and sisters in Christ, the ones that he called saints at the beginning, and now reminds them that that, that, that word saint brings with it relationship as, as brothers and sisters. Paul ends his letter to them with a blessing of peace and love and faith and grace from where? From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he opened the letter and then reminded them of every spiritual blessing that they have been given in the heavens with Jesus. I love the way he puts the last line. He doesn't just call them saints, right? 
He calls them brothers and sisters, but he, in that last line, he says, all of those who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, it means a love that's incorruptible. Why? Because it's fully and firmly protected by Jesus himself. If we're going to stand firm against our enemy, we need to stand firm together in Christ. He is the full armor of God. We've been given every spiritual blessing in Him, and we are secure in Him. We walk by faith in Him. We stand firm in battle because Christ has already defeated our adversary. We stand firm with endurance because we've been empowered by Christ's Holy Spirit, and He reminds us that we stand firm already in victory. So seek then to know God's wide and long and high and deep love for you in Christ. Remember that you have put off the old self and you've put on the new self in Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling of salvation that you've received in Christ. Do the good works of God that he's already prepared for you to do in Christ. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children in Christ. Submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Put on the full armor of God. And stand firm together in Christ in his vast strength. Stay alert and pray for one another so that together we may boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ in Christ. Be encouraged, church, in Christ because he's defeated our enemy already. And he's commissioned us to participate in setting free prisoners of war by pointing them to the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation in Christ. And peace, love, faith, and grace be yours eternally in him forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word and for the grace that is so abundant in it. The grace that we need for salvation, the Christ that we need for salvation, that you've given us him freely and fully. And we pray that as we seek to obey you, we would do so firmly rooted in him, knowing that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness, knowing that you uh, have secured our inheritance to come by sealing us with the spirit, knowing that you've given us the ability to walk freely in obedience to you in love. May we never close our mouths to this good news, but may we freely share it both as individual believers and as this church with those who remain imprisoned. All for your glory, for the good of your people, and in Christ, in his name we pray this. Amen.